You're in with the ghost of radio. Welcome back to this, our shared podcast, all about above and beyond mid-century horror radio. Good to see you back around our cauldron, filled with episodes for us to listen to apart and together, to discuss, make sense of, and to enjoy. Nothing quite like it. Thank goodness we have an inexhaustible cauldron at our disposal, so let's reach inside it. I say let's very metaphorically because, of course, only the ghost of radio can reach inside the cauldron. And bring out Don't Tell Me About Halloween from Quiet Please. The episode is called Don't Tell Me About Halloween from our dearest friend, the greatest of all mid-century horror series, Quiet Please. Why didn't this come up during our origin season of October? Well, the cauldronette that controls our destiny during that time is no fool and knows that this episode has nothing to do with true horror. So it's giving it to us now, another season later, and we take what we get by going to the internet, typing in relicradio.com or archive.org. Both places have it all. Go to a non-tracking search engine and type in quietplease.org for the wonderful fan site where you can get scripts and episodes and all sorts of things, reenactments, cleaned up audio, etc. Or type in Quiet Please Radio, single episodes. This episode is rough at the start, very scratchy. Just a warning, you know that the greatest of all series has the worst of all audio. It's such a biting irony. Keep listening. You know that if you do, it eventually smooths out as they get farther in on the disc. But also, there'll be a little surprise at the beginning that I want you to pay very close, close attention to. Off you go. See you soon. All right, we are back from listening to Don't Tell Me About Halloween from Quiet Please and What Did You Make of It? Oh, this episode is so classic, Quiet Please. No, it's not one of the heavy hitters that leaves you so spooked out of your mind that you don't exactly know how to get up out of your chair and go on living your normal everyday life. But as always, it's thought-provoking. And as always, you could listen to Ernest Chappell talk to you about anything. Anything. Oh, the magnetism of that man. There are, uh, there's one moment of sheer horror that's very hard to even think about in this episode. And it's just like when we were listening to Sagamore Cottage a little while ago. You can say to yourself what happens and think, Whoa, if you allow yourself for one second to get a mental image, you're sunk. So we just wisely don't do that. But let's deal with that surprise, that little mystery at the very beginning, before we hear Ernest Chapel saying, quiet, please. What is this audio? Ghost to ghost, I can't figure it out. Someone is calling out to us from the past. I cannot make heads or tails of it. If you can, if you are a tech whiz out there, 
let us know. For now, let's try to hear what this voice is saying to us and feel just that bit of a chill. Girl, que pasa? It's got the crazy energy of an ad, you know, ironized yeast tablets kind of thing, yet cannot tell. Is it Ernest Chappell goofing around? Is it just audio from 1965 that got clipped in from wherever this was taken? Oh, I think it's got to be something deeper than that. Is it the voice of a man who died when he killed his witch wife? speaking out to us somehow? Well, I enjoy not knowing. And feeling that way, now we can dive right in to the intro that we expected. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Get away from that snapping. Ugh, poor quiet, please. If only, if only it could have been better preserved. And as I mentioned, the Quiet Please website, which is a wonderful fan site, has cleaned up audio versions, but sometimes they're just not any better. And I don't blame them. It's not their fault. Sometimes cleaning up the audio just makes it so dim that you can't, you just can't hear anything. Or maybe that's just your old ghost who can't really hear anything. I think we'll take Quiet Please with all the original unwanted stresses of aging. All right, so we jump into the story. Um, Boy, we're disappointed at first glance, right? The very first words set us off. I'm going to kill my wife tonight. That's all too often <laughs> the theme of a mid-century horror radio story and taken very, very seriously. We're on a roll with this theme this season. Season seven has been all about how we feel about how women and wives in particular are treated in this genre. But we instantly find out this is not what it seems on the surface. And we get to hear him talk to us about the witchcraft trials in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Well, 1692 through three, maybe up a little bit into four. And as usual, we're so swept along by whatever the magic is in his voice that we allow him to say some things that aren't quite factual, like he meets Candace on Halloween 1694. Don't have time right now to get into the where's and why's and how for's of Halloween's development. But let's just say it didn't start in America in 1694. Do we care? We do not. 
because it's Ernest Chapel talking. Uh, I'm going to kill my wife tonight. Or maybe tomorrow night. I mean, I'm going to kill one of my wives. I bet her something's going to happen to me that won't be good. Well, Halloween's almost here. Halloween's the deadline. And Candace has to be dead before Halloween. Only trouble is, I'm not sure I'll recognize her when she shows up. You ever been in Salem, Massachusetts? Place where they hanged all the witches? No, they didn't burn them at the stake. A lot of people think so, but they didn't. They hanged them. All except the man witch, old Giles Corey. They pressed him to death. Very unpleasant. Well, it was in Salem this particular Halloween that I met Candace. <laughs> sure it was. Whatever you say. Why don't you sit down there? No, sit down. Be comfortable. Sit down. Have some wine. And I'll tell you about when Halloween began. Then don't get up. Just sit there and drink your wine. <laughs> All right. We will meet Candace just as he does that night. We will overlook the fact that this man who is allegedly born in, what, 1660 is named Craig <laughs> I will also tell you over your second glass of sherry that Craig was not a name that English colonizers had in, <laughs> in 1694 or 1660 or any time in New England. But that's not super important here. What is important is that Candace is revealed to be one of those inexplicable, malevolent forces. There is no reason why she has to act the way she does, why she has to choose someone like Craig and set up this deal with him and tell him he's marrying her. He just fell into her clutches and he didn't have to deserve it or not deserve it. It's not even about him. Anyone who had been up there and said, who's that, would be in his shoes. And we like that faceless, motiveless kind of malevolence. And she is a representation of that. He comes to realize that toward the end. Let's get the beginning. I'd like to start with the beginning so that we can move toward the end and have her revealed in a way that the faceless, motiveless malevolence usually is not through an engaging human being, but you get that undercurrent of the force that she actually represents. It was dark up there on the hill with a gallows used to stand, dark and cold, with a damp wind coming in off the sea. The few little lights you could see in the dusk only made it darker and lonelier and creepier up there. I remember how I shivered as I started down the hill to town, and I remember how I jumped when something that looked like a black cat jumped out of the shadows at my feet. Without thinking, I yelled, Who's that? My heart almost stopped beating because... Well, good evening. I'd been all alone up there. And then, all of a sudden, there was a woman standing beside me. You're the first human being that's spoken to me tonight. Who are you? I'm Candace. I... I don't know any Candace. You didn't, but you do now. You really scared me to death. Oh, I wouldn't do that to you. What's your name? Craig. You like me, Craig? What? Why, I don't know what you look like. I like you very much. Well, but I... Kiss me, Craig. 
Now. Kiss me, I think. <clears throat> you know, you're going to be a very nice husband for me, Craig. What do you mean? I'm not going to... Oh, yes, you are. When I say something's going to happen, it happens, Craig. But I... I'm not... Wouldn't you like to be rich, Craig, and have a beautiful wife? I am beautiful. You'll see. Wouldn't you like to be rich and wise and happy and live forever? Wouldn't you, Craig? Who the devil are you? <laughs> Why, that's a very apt way of putting it, Craig. Who are you? I'm Candace. That doesn't mean anything to me. I'm the witch they didn't hang, Craig. Now, you know that we've said it's motiveless in that there's no long story to tell about why this kind of malevolent presence exists, why it happens across its victims, yet you can't help wondering what's in it for her. What's in it for her to have this human, earthly husband who she keeps alive by letting him partake in her magic once a year, they must be together, and you imagine it must be physically together, if you get my ghost drift, in order for him to keep on living eternally like her. But she doesn't need him. What does it do for her? Does she actually need a way to be tied back to the earth every year? We don't know. You don't think about it at all as you're listening, because with his narration and the whole point of view in the story, you're, you're utterly immersed in his side of the story. So you find yourself not really thinking about these things until afterward, till after the play is over. But you do wonder why. Just one night, not even the full day, one night a year they're together. We can keep pondering that as she lays down these ground rules for him. I remember the way she put it, standing up there in the early morning, watching the mists crawling along the ground below us. You'll not see me now till another Halloween. And I can't tell you what form I'll be in when I come to see you again. But if you see a strange bird or a lost dog, or any strange being at your door come Halloween, you say, who's that? And if it so happens the stranger's me, why then, I'll be home with you till the cock crows for morning. And I remember I started to speak, to ask questions, but she stopped me. For the time's short now, my love. And remember the words, and we've all the future before us. As long as I live, you shall live. And below us somewhere, a rooster crowed. And I was standing alone on the hill. And a yellow butterfly was rising in circles above my head. I watched it disappear into the first rays of the sun. All right, it has begun. And now we, like Craig, can only bear witness to the passing of the years as he delineates the times that she visits. And it's a lot of listing that could be repetitive and boring, but he does a good job with it. Willis Cooper, writing away. Uh, let's get, I think, the first visit 
it doesn't go well. We don't like the fact that he's about to kick a dog. I don't like dogs. What on earth? Uh, her reaction is justified, and hopefully he learned a lesson. Halloween, 1695. A stray dog lay on my doorstep, shivering in the rain. I don't like dogs. I was about to boot the animal into the street when I caught a look in its eyes. I yelled, who's that? Well, it's about time. I've been lying there on that doorstep, freezing and nearly drowned without a stitch on, and you stand there and look at me like some great fool. Get me something to put around me and stop the fire before I take my death of cold. And I do believe you were going to kick me, too. Well, I have to say it, you. Candace, dear, how was I to know? Give me that quilt. Oh. Oh, she was all contriteness and apologies in a moment. But I can feel that slap alongside my chops from two and a half centuries ago. As well you might. But we have to turn now to this really horrible moment, uh, which if you allow yourself to think about it for one fleeting minute, it's impossible to bear. He doesn't even have an affair with this other woman. He says at the end that he never even kissed her. It's a horrible metaphorical example of how women will go after other women instead of going after the man who actually did the harm. And again, we can simply say she turns her into a squirrel and dogs chase her if you really let yourself get. Not just that mental image, but allow yourself to be inside that woman's mind. This is some of the toughest stuff you will come across in mid-century horror radio, just embedded in a brief scene in this otherwise rather average episode. You never know when Quiet Please is going to rear its head as the most evocative mid-century horror radio series ever made. It always reserves the right to suddenly rear up and become intensely powerful, and that's what makes it the greatest of all these series. Don't you ever get lonely while I'm away? What? Why, certainly. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about, Craig. I don't either. You forgetting that I'm a witch, dear? What? <laughs> you can't keep anything from me, Craig. Don't you know that? Why? Well, I... Oh, I won't punish you, Craig. But you mustn't run around with red-haired girls. Well, I don't know what you... Oh, yes, you do. So I just decided to take that temptation away from you. Candace, what did you... Look over there at the window, darling. And I looked. And peering in the window out of the darkness was a frightened, tiny red squirrel, its teeth chattering with terror and cold. She's still got her red hair, dear. Candace. Candace, did you do that to her? Try to rescue her, Craig. I've got other plans for your little girlfriend. What are you going to... Listen. Now come here and kiss me. Good. Yes, in some ways it's fine. In some ways. You know, in the last 50, 60 years, I've gotten so I'm afraid to say who's that... Anytime. Uh, wait a second. Did you hear anything? 
guess she's not here. I, I wouldn't want her to surprise me again. I want to surprise her. It's 67 years ago that she set the wolves on that poor little red squirrel. It was once Marjorie... I've forgotten her last name. And that is the final note of that horror. He can't even remember her name. It's been a long time. And he hardly knew her, this woman who died because of him. Mm. In this next scene, it is meant to be funny to think of him being turned into a fire alarm post. If, again, you really think through what he's talking about, to, to be able to experience all of the extremes of weather, just that alone, to experience that as a human, is actually, again, intensely horrible. It's intensely horrible. He leads us to believe he felt the cold and the heat, and the rain. And we all know how cold and hot and wet it is outside for things made of metal. Deeply, deeply weird and funny on the surface, not funny underneath. And again, we're asking ourselves, what is it doing for Candace. You know, coming back once a year and for a few hours exerting her power over this guy? Why? Is it just the break she needs from doing more important things? What is it? What's it doing for her? Why did she tell him they were married all those centuries ago on that hill? We will just never know. I've never been in Washington before. We go Oh, I saw quite a lot of it, lying in. Yes? Who's that woman? What woman? Why, Craig, darling, where on earth have you been? Yes, I thought Gertrude was in Chicago where I'd left her. Wasn't that just my luck? I don't know what Candace did to her. She just disappeared. But you know what that witch did to me? She turned me into a fire alarm box. Ah, don't laugh, it isn't funny. From October 31st, 1910 till October 31st, 1911, I stood there in front of the Willard Hotel, rain and shine, snow and boiling hot weather. And nobody even turned in an alarm on me. Of course, they did paint me in the spring. Then at half past 11 on Halloween, a little black dog came by. I tried to say... Who's that? And I made it all right because I could hear gears clicking and wheels turning. And there we were, Candace in a black fur coat and me in a blue serge suit all plastered with red paint. <laughs> you look perfectly awful, Craig. Well, how do you think I feel? Oh, my feet. Well, now maybe you won't be chasing other women, my dear. Candace, I, I promise I'll never do it again. You'd better not, sweetheart. I'm a very jealous woman. So I noticed. And if you think that was bad, how would you like me to... No, no, Candace, please. No, no. Don't tell me. You may kiss me now. And don't get paint all over my coat. All right, so he doesn't learn his lesson. This is the weird part, right? That's why this very otherwise average, potentially silly episode is a real sticker, because why? 
after that experience and after what happened to Marjorie, what happened to her? Does he get involved with another woman again? Why? Is it just the only way that he can not, like, that he can fight his fate and not just resign himself to it? But he knows that he won't be the only victim of that crime. How can he even enjoy it? Why does he decide with Alicia that she's the one that leads him to finally say he's going to kill Candace? (laughs) Alicia starts out okay, but then they just make her progressively dumber and dumber till their final phone call, which I'm not going to play, is just the worst. Um, Let's meet her here. And they do a nice little bit of weird sleight of hand where she can see us watching them kiss. This reminds us of the man who knew everything, where we were baffled all the way through about where we were and how he was talking to us. How are we talking to this guy? Are we suddenly in his cabin? We're in the cabin with him? Now we feel a little bit scared. We don't want to be there when Candace gets there. But there's no other indication at any time that we are actually there. You get the feeling that it's almost like she sees us watching through some kind of, I don't know, some kind of technology window. I don't know. We don't even have time to get into it. This could be its whole own separate category of sleights of hand in Quiet Please that just keep you guessing. For now, let's get a little bit of it. Maybe you'll figure it out and you can tell me. Here comes Alicia now. I'd like to have you meet her. This is Alicia. How do you do? Alicia and I are going to be married. Yes, indeed. Right after Halloween. Alicia's secretary to the dean of women. That's how I met Craig. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you don't mean to imply I was flirting with the dean, Alicia. Oh, goodness, no, dear. I mean, you were being introduced to her when when we first saw each other. Oh, darling. I'll never forget it. Oh, I won't either. (laughs) Isn't she pretty? Oh, Craig... You mustn't talk that way to strangers. Oh, I'm sorry, dear, but you are pretty. <laughs> but I'm so much younger than you are, Craig. Well, uh, you are a little younger, dear, but uh, that won't make any difference, will it? Oh, not to me, darling. Uh, excuse us a second. <laughs> darling, I love you. Oh, darling, I love you. Sweetheart. Shut your eyes a second, will you, please? Now, darling. Don't cry, Minnie. No. (laughs) Draw, draw the curtain there. My goodness. That is the only time, I think, that Quiet Please wanders into that weird realm. Thank goodness we're now rolling through to the end of a story that has become progressively more uh, unsettling, distasteful. It's hard to really pinpoint your emotions. An episode that you think is just going to be kind of a laugh is ending up making you feel pretty gross. You're worried about what's going to happen to Alicia because you know she is going to drive up to surprise him. You aren't worried about him killing Candace because just like him, you've forgotten that he lives as long as she lives. But while you wouldn't 
grieve her passing, you do worry that something fundamental is going to break down if she is removed. You also doubt that he can really kill her. How can he kill her? How can this mortal kill her, some immortal being? It doesn't seem like it's going to be possible. And we're mostly just worrying about what she's going to do to him, and, of course, to Alicia when she arrives, after he fails to kill her. We are not prepared for the ending that we get. Let's roll through it and have that uneasy balance disrupted again in our minds. Well, so here I am. I wish I could have got Alicia back on that phone. If she comes up here, she'll... Oh, well, she won't. She's got better sense. Yeah, let's see what time is it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. Revolver with a silver bullet. The old Revolutionary War bayonet I had at Valley Forge. A Bowie knife Dave Crockett gave me. And I'm pretty well fixed. Come on, Candace, honey. Come on. Yes, come on in. <laughs> This time you can come ahead of time, baby, and Papa will be waiting for you. (laughs) And then... uh, Alicia. She's an owl or something this time. Wait a minute. Oh, if she's an owl, I better get that shotgun out. Oh, 
Nothing but a squashed moth. One of them big death's head moths, you know. And a skeleton. Yeah, a skeleton. All dried up and dusty. Like it was maybe 250 years old. And that's all. Just him and the moth. Funny, ain't it? Why is this uh, forest stranger out in the middle of nowhere in the mountains such a New Yorker? He is an irritating, horribly unwelcome person, uh, being abusive toward Alicia, telling her to shut up and calm down, basically. Uh, the ending reminds us of the Twilight Zone episode from 1960, I think, Long Live Walter Jameson, where the local history professor, who actually is immortal and lived through the Civil War, is somehow has his magic disturbed and ends up as a pile of dust on the floor. <sighs> he does kill Candace, and we did not expect that. Shouldn't be possible, right? But I guess if she really does come back as a living creature, like a moth, an earthly creature, maybe she partakes in that mortality. Maybe that's why she comes back year after year, because, oh, maybe... She needs to experience 24 hours or something like that of mortality in order to fuel her immortality. <gasps> that would be an interesting idea. If that's the case, I wish they had explained it. Maybe that's not what Willis Cooper was thinking about. We're glad Alicia is spared. We're glad Candace is dead. We're glad Craig is dead. We never want to see any of them again. And just once more bears saying that you didn't think you would leave this seemingly lightweight episode with such bitter feelings. But you do. Because there's more working in it under the surface than you thought. That's quiet, please. All right, let's get our outro. by Willis Cooper. The man who talked to you was Ernest Chappell. Angerita Bauer played Candace. Alicia was Peggy Stanley. And the forest ranger was Jim Bowles. The music for Quiet, Please is composed and played by Gene Perazzo, except, of course, for our theme, which, in answer to many queries, is based on the second movement of the symphony in D minor by César Franck. Now, for a word about next week's Quiet, Please, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Take me out to the graveyard. That's the title I've got for next week's story. Come along for the ride, won't you? So until next week at this time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. Quiet, please, comes to you from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. hidden voices at the end. Ah, oh, there it goes. Take me out to the graveyard. Remember that? I think way back in season two, maybe, we did a compare contrast on that with a Nightfall episode that was clearly based on it. A good episode. And if you say that about Quiet Please, you know it's much more than that small word good. 
Well, that was Don't Tell Me About Halloween. From Quiet Please, and even deeply unsettling as it was, not good enough to get into our Halloween origin season cauldronette. We are indeed made of sterner stuff. Always a Quiet Please episode in that cauldronette, but not this one. We enjoyed going through it together, though. That's what we do. So, until it's Halloween or whatever time it is again and not Halloween and just for a few hours, for some reason, that we meet together again in Trenton, Secaucus, or Shrewsbury, go your way this week. Be safe, be happy, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>